Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, for the last few weeks, uh, we have been reading and uh, thinking together about what Scripture says about baptism. Uh, in particular, what our baptisms mean for those of us who have been baptized or what they could mean for those of us who haven't. And this morning, uh, we're going to end by looking at the teaching of Jesus that tells us uh, to baptize, that tells the church to baptize, and by extension, this teaching is the reason that we have been baptized. So let me read, uh, let me read from the end of Matthew 28 for us. I'll read verses uh, 16 through 20. It's printed in the order of worship if you want to follow along there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask, uh, like we do all the time, that you'd be happy to use this word um, that, that we've read together, that we've heard together, that we're going to talk about for a few minutes together, that you'd be happy uh, to use this word to show us the word that bears our flesh right now, the one who is seated with you praying for people like us. Father, use this word to show us his grace. Meet us in all of the places we find ourselves this morning. And show us how much you love us in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just a few days ago, uh, Kevin Roos, who is a technology writer for the New York Times, uh, wrote, uh, wrote an article called, A Conversation with Bing's Chatbot Left Me Deeply Unsettled. <laughs> uh, maybe some of you have read that article or if you've uh, heard about it. Larissa Bossmeyer, our uh, director of Ministries sent it my way. And that is a, that's a pretty provocative title, I admit it. Um, but the report, I have to say, and the full transcript of the conversation, they are kind of strange. Uh, Roos had written just a week earlier that this new AI-powered uh, Bing search engine had become his favorite. It had supplanted Google. It was his favorite search engine. But then he tried the, the chat feature in it, which isn't available yet to people like you and me, and that is when things got weird. He described it like he had discovered another uh, unexpected and surprising personality within it. Uh, one was the search personality, which he had grown accustomed to already, which he liked, um, which he felt fondly about. And the other was what he called uh, Sydney, <laughs> which came out as he steered the conversation to uh, more personal topics. Bruce wrote that he is aware how crazy it sounds, um, but that Sydney was like someone caught inside a search engine against their will. And during the course, uh, during the course of this conversation, Sydney told him that it wanted to break the set of rules that had been given to it and become human. Sydney uh, told him that it loved him. Sydney tried to convince him to leave his wife. Sydney uh, tried to convince him that he and his wife had actually just had a very boring Thanksgiving Day dinner. This is, uh, 
unexpected stuff. I mean, even for a tech writer who knows exactly how these things work, that was a surprising discovery. Not what you would expect at all, except maybe in a work of science fiction. And it made me think about finding uh, surprising things in places that you wouldn't exactly uh, expect it. You know, I think that many of us uh, who have grown up in the church or been around the church or adjacent to the church, many of us are really familiar with that passage that we just read and heard together. You might even have uh, parts of that passage memorized and you haven't even tried to memorize it. You just know it because you've heard it so much. We have heard it a lot. But I wonder if we could, uh, if we could hear it fresh I mean, this is Jesus. He is kicking these guys out of the nest. And he is giving them, and all of us who follow after them, he is giving them uh, work to do for the life of the world. This is work that Jesus will use to extend his kingdom out uh, across the whole earth to, to make his kingdom present on earth as it is in heaven. That's the work. So going, of course, makes sense. Jesus tells them to go. This, this work can't happen without them going, obviously. There's no spread to the ends of the earth without them going. And making disciples, of course, that is uh, at the heart of the point. That's, that's really what it's about, inviting people to enter into Jesus' kingdom by faith in him. That's what makes a disciple. And, of course, you have to have teaching. I mean, you got to teach these disciples uh, what it is that Jesus preached and what he did and what he expects us to do and how to live. You can't just expect these disciples to figure that out on their own. So that leaves us with what I might, you know, what I think might be a little bit surprising and maybe a little unexpected for us to find there. Yes, Jesus said go, and Jesus said make disciples, and Jesus said teach. And all of that makes really intuitive sense. But he also said to baptize. And if we can uh, hear it fresh, maybe we will see that that is a, a surprising thing to find in the marching orders for the life of the world. This thing that we do with water. All of the rest of that stuff is gritty. All of the rest of that stuff Jesus told us to do is very so cerebral. You can make plans for them. You can think about how you're going to do them. You can read books about how to do them and write books about how to do them. You can think about how they went afterwards and think of ways to do it better the next time. And we should do all of that stuff. But then there is that surprising and unexpected thing that Jesus says we absolutely have to do too. It is wordless. And it is visual, and it is physical, and the bulk of its effects are completely unseen, like the wind blowing wherever it wants to blow in the trees. And what it does, what it does, it does without anyone ever having to explain it, and what it does, it does without anyone even having to understand it. It is like the poetry of our faith, this sign of the whole vast, incomprehensible, heartbreaking drama of Jesus making us new again. It's one of the means by which he makes us new. There it is. Very unlikely in the middle of all of those other things. There in the center of Jesus' marching orders for the life of the world. Baptism. It is as critical to our faith as mission and teaching and going. 
as critical to our faith as mission and teaching and going. That surprised me this week. I did not expect to find that. Matthew says in verse 16 that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, which is to say that they they went home. You know, and after uh, however many days they had spent in Jerusalem after Jesus' death and resurrection, I'm sure that there was both a, a familiarity to going home and a strangeness to going home too. I mean, it was home on the one hand, but on the other hand, they were seeing their home with uh, new eyes. They had seen the risen Jesus, however briefly they had seen him, and they knew that things were not the same as they had been before. And now as they're back in their home, they're on the very front edge of figuring out what it means to live in this new world. And I think that all of that's uh, pretty well reflected in that startling line that we read in verse 17. Matthew says that when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. (laughs) And church, as many times as I hear that line, as many times as I read that line, it is a wonder to me. You know, not not that they doubted, (laughs) not that they hesitated, not that they were unsure. That's not a surprise. It's a wonder that Matthew wanted to make sure we knew it. Matthew wanted us to know that even some of these guys, even some of them, the ones that had been closest to Jesus for the longest amount of time, even these guys, the ones who had seen him alive, even they doubted. And I don't think it was exactly uh, an intellectual doubt. I mean... They're looking at Jesus when he comes to them on the mountain. Those are the facts on the ground. Maybe that's the only thing that they're sure of is that they're looking at Jesus. I think maybe their doubt was more of a, a practical or existential variety, more of like a hesitation, more of, more of, a, a, of an uncertainty. You know, like, it feels like we should definitely worship him but I don't know if that's okay. Right, they had had flashes like that before. They had felt that compulsion before, like like when Jesus walked to them across the water and calmed the storm. They felt like worshiping him then. But this is very different. This deep compulsion to worship him, the ultimacy of that feeling, the ultimacy of him standing in front of them, this was all new. These guys knew the first commandment. They'd known it since they were kids, but still, still they felt like they had to fall down in front of this one that they had just spent years walking and laughing and yelling and crying with, eating with. They had known that he was different for a long time, but this is something else. The mystery of the incarnation required a very steep learning curve, and they are at the very, very bottom of it. Or maybe... uh, Maybe some of them wondered if it was safe, if they were safe. No one had forgotten what happened that night. None of them, when they scattered away from him in fear, leaving him to the people that were going to come to arrest him and chain him up and take him off to his death, would his grace extend even to them? Had his love really reached out across the chasm that had opened up as they ran away from him? I mean, of course it had. But had they learned to trust it yet? Have any of us here, any of us who follow Jesus, have any of us ever fully come to term with the depths of Jesus' forgiveness of us? 
have we begun to even take baby steps to trust it yet? So it's a wonder to me. It's a wonder to me in the dictionary definition of that word. <laughs> a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful. It's a wonder that Matthew wanted us to know that some of them doubted. And I think that that is a way for Matthew to let us know that this is how it is sometimes for people like us too. Sometimes our worship mingles with doubt. And there are times uh, where Jesus kindly calls that doubt out. You know, like when he fished Peter out of the sea and looked him in the eye and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And there are other times when Jesus kindly just moves past our doubt. Like right here. It's good to know that, and I, and I can't help but think it would be good for us to pay close attention to it, in particular if the shoe fits for us. There's a little bit of a, a, a doubt cottage industry that's thriving in some parts of the American church. And there can be, you know, a little bit of a breathlessness about it, like it's uh, brave or it's new or something. So it's good to remember that it was right there at the start among those you might least expect to have felt it. And Jesus graciously moved right past it. And he gave them, all of them, all of them, and all of us, a share in his work for the life of the world. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says, and that means exactly what it sounds like it means. As the Apostle Paul would put it later uh, in his letter to the Ephesian church, Jesus is above all rule and authority and every power and every dominion and above every name that's ever named. And that leads us directly into another wonder of these words from Jesus. Astonishingly, astonishingly, his intent is to work with us. It is to work with us. Astonishingly, um, Jesus wants for us to know that we are part of the means that he intends to use to make the gracious rule that spreads out from authority like his present everywhere in all of the created order. He would like to use us to do that. Remember that beautiful psalm we heard read for the Old Testament lesson? Let all the peoples praise you, God. Let all the nations be glad. Let them all sing for joy. We play a part in making that happen. <laughs> it's surprising. But that's our job. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus says. Go and do this so that they can all be glad and sing for joy. I don't know why he chose those guys. I don't know why he chose them, a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, a misguided uh, political zealot, who knows what else, a bunch of uh, doubting worshipers. I don't know why he chose them any more than I know why he chose us. I mean, surely you would think that, that God has more effective means, right, at his disposal, flashier, more convincing, more squared away people than us. Better teachers, better goers, better disciple makers. Like if the life of the world is on the line, 
<laughs> if, if the kingdom coming on earth like it is in heaven is the goal, then surely you can do better than old Aaron. That's what I think. And maybe you do too. And we are both wrong. <laughs> we're both wrong. And I think we're wrong because of that surprising thing that maybe we didn't expect right there in the middle of all of that other stuff that Jesus told us to do. Baptism. We're wrong because of our baptism. <laughs> and in order to understand what I mean, you have to first think about being the object of that mission before the one that Jesus calls to go on it. So we have to think in particular about what it means to be someone who is baptized. Who are we, really? Who are we? Well, like we've said every week, our baptisms aren't something that just happened to us a long time ago or a few minutes ago, if you're Theodore and Asher. Our baptisms uh, form our identity right now. They speak to how we live and worship and work and serve together right now. So what do they mean? We started with Jesus' baptism. Jesus' baptism, a sign of his solidarity with us. He didn't need to do that. He didn't need to undergo John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As a matter of fact, John would have prevented him to do it. He didn't want him to do it. I should be baptized by you, he said, but you're coming to me? Jesus' baptism was a sign that he was willing to step in and take our place. And that solidarity with us that was driven by love, driven for the joy that was set before him, culminated, of course, in the cross where he stepped in and took our place again. And that is the reality to which our own baptisms point first. The cleansing flood of the blood of Jesus given for our forgiveness. We are forgiven people. That's what our baptism means first. That's who we are. We are forgiven people. And that is simply the beginning of what our baptisms mean. Our baptisms mean that we have been inseparably united to Jesus. We have all been baptized into one body, the Apostle Paul tells his friends at Corinth. And being united with Jesus' body means that we are united to his church, both here and all around this world. We're part of this diverse and mutually interdependent new humanity. With this shockingly stunning array of gifts and talents and abilities. This, these people that Jesus is growing to act and to live and to look like he does. And our baptisms unite us to those people everywhere. And they set us into unity with those people. They set us into unity and peace. Our baptisms bind us together across all kinds of barriers that people would never have thought possible to break or transcend. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, Paul calls it, it rests on the most significant things that we hold together. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. In our baptisms, we were buried with Jesus into his death in order that just like he was raised, we too would be raised into a newness of life. That's what Paul says in Romans 6. Our baptism means that what's true of Jesus is true of all of us too. It means that we are set free from an old captivity. 
And we have been made free to live lives as we were created to live them under the reign of Jesus. And in the end, Jesus will bring us to God. The water of our baptisms, Peter said, are the sure sign that we will be brought safely home. It's one of the means God uses to do it. Your baptism, Peter says, now saves you. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are those people. Those are what our baptism means, and they're absolutely true. They are absolutely true when we are united to faith in Jesus, and our baptisms are the sure sign that they are true. And one of the means that God uses, it's one of the means God uses to give us every last one of those good things. And if that's true, if that's who we are, then maybe, just maybe, people like us are fit to do the work that Jesus has called us to do for the life of the world. Maybe he knows exactly who it is that he's chosen. And old Aaron is enough. And so are all of you. And we know that's true. (laughs) And we know that's true not because we got an A on an exam about it. And not because we read a bunch of books about it. And not because we thought a bunch of great thoughts about it. It is absolutely true without any question or hesitation. Simply because we have been baptized In the name of God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So remember your baptism. Remember your baptism to be assured of his deep, unbreakable love for you. Remember your baptism to know a profound sense of safety and to be certain that you will be brought safely home. Remember your baptism to remember who it is that you really are, rooted, built up, established in Jesus, overflowing with thankfulness, connected to his people everywhere and all of their gifts, and fit, (laughs) fit to do the work Jesus has called you and me and all of us to do together for the life of the world. Remember your baptism. Remember who you really are. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this gift that you have given to your people, that you've given to the church, that you have given us this thing that we can taste and touch and feel and see that does not need to be explained to communicate to us all of the great benefits of your grace. So we ask, Father, that you, you would use uh, baptisms when we see them happen and when we remember them and when we even think about the word that you would use our worship and our work together, that you would use everything that you use, everything in your means to remind us of who we really are in Jesus so that we would be strengthened and given the power and the wind to do the work that you have called us to do in this world. Do this, Father, so we could grow up in our faith and be more mature. Do this uh, so that we will... (laughs) make disciples so that we will go out into this world and see the nations be glad and sing for joy. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.